like like to open, invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 12. We're going to be examining the first three verses of Genesis 12 today. So if you're new to the faith, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. It should be pretty easy for you to find. Uh, but if you are using one of the Bibles we provided for you, it's on page 8. Uh, so it's good to be in the single digits this morning uh, studying God's Word together. Um, we are, as we've mentioned, in the beginning of this surf series And this passage, I believe, is going to set the tone for our understanding of what it means to serve others. I want you to think about this. Roughly 56,000 people live in this city. If you add the populations of all the surrounding cities, that number swells to almost 300,000 people. Now just pause and think for a moment about the great personal needs of these 300,000 people that surround us on a daily basis. Some are without a home. Others can barely scrape enough change to put food on the table each and every day. Children are without a father figure and a mentor. Families can't afford to go on vacation or send their kids to summer camp because of the economic crunch these days. Hundreds in our communities are suffering from a variety of emotional and physical needs. They need someone to come alongside them, to counsel them, to encourage them. And then you have a large international population who are just struggling to learn a language, struggling to acquire job skills. Now, let me ask a few follow-up questions. Who will meet their needs? Who? If not you, then who? And if not now, then when? See, the great truths of the Bible teach us that God has blessed his people so that we would turn around and then be a blessing to others. And that's exactly what Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 is going to teach us this morning. It's going to teach us that God blesses his faith-filled people so that they might be a blessing to all people. God blesses his faithful people so that they might turn around and be a blessing to all people. So let's look at these first three verses in Genesis chapter 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of the mission of God. The story of the mission of God is a story of redemption. 
This story of redemption is a story of grace. The story of grace is directly tied to the story of our sin. And the story of our sin is tied to the story of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. The story of Christ will culminate with people from all over the globe worshiping Him and giving Him the praise that He so richly deserves. Now, all of those truths begin to be unpacked for us right here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is one of the key texts, if not the key text, on the mission of God in the Bible. I mean, if we want to understand the overarching story of the Bible, we have to understand Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It really serves as a hinge verse for really the whole Bible. You say, what do you mean by that? It's a, it's a passage on which the whole turns. It goes back, Genesis 1 to 11, we're going to see how creation, fall, is unpacked in Genesis 1 through 11. And then 12, 1 through 3, you have this story of redemption that really begins to unfold, that takes us all the way to the book of Revelation. These are incredibly important verses. William Dumbrell says this, What is being written in these few verses is a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world. You have a blueprint right here in these verses that teach us about God's redemptive plan for all of human history. And so we're going to see three encouragements from these verses on what it means to, to be blessed to be a blessing. The first one is this. We must respond to God's missional call on our lives. Here's the first encouragement. Respond to God's missional call on your life. John Stott rightfully said, our God is a missionary God. The pattern of Scripture from beginning to end is not our pursuit of God, it's His pursuit of us. We see this unfold in these early chapters. You have these four major plot lines. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the overarching storyline of Scripture. In the first 12 chapters, we have these first three plot moves, if you will. Genesis 1 tells us about God's creative work. God created all things. He created all people, and He made people in His image so that we might reflect who He is. He's made us relational. He's made us rational. He's made us creative. He's made us spiritual and moral. And so with our lives, we are to glorify Him with the way we live our lives. Now, Genesis 3 teaches us very quickly that our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't do that so well. In fact, they willfully rebelled against their Creator, against their great God. And the consequences were grave. Now, how do we see God's missionary nature start to unfold in these early chapters? Well, number one, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin against God, God graciously comes to them, and it says in verse 21, He closed their nakedness. This is an act of grace. But even more amazing than that, in Genesis 3.15, listen to what he says. Genesis 3.15 begins to point to this future ultimate rescuer, the deliverer, the savior of the world. 
Jesus Christ. Listen to what Genesis 3.15 says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to Satan here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as early as Genesis 3.15, this is what some scholars call the proto-euangelion. You say, what does that mean? It is the first announcement of the gospel right here in Genesis 3. It is saying that, okay, Satan, you have this plan to work for the destruction of the human race. I have a son that I'm going to send, an offspring of the woman, that, yes, you may bruise his heel. We see this on the cross. The heel of Christ is bruised. But also on the cross and in his resurrection, we find that he crushes the head of Satan on the cross. So God is a missionary God. He comes and he distributes grace. And he comes and he points to ultimate grace in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not all. In Genesis 4 through 11, you have the story of humanity's sinful hearts just continue to unfold and unfold. Evil is rampant. Even in the midst of God sending the judgment of a great flood, you still see sin continue after that. But God in his rich grace and mercy does not leave us to ourselves. And that's what we find in Genesis 12. He pursues his people through this man named Abram, who he will later name Abraham. So God, not because there's anything special about Abram, but just because of his own sovereign grace, he calls out Abram to be a follower of him, and to then extend blessing to all people. So from beginning to end, it is God taking the initiative in the story of redemption. And we see this even in our passage. I don't know if you caught it, but when we read verses 1 through 3, you see five times God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God takes the initiative. The story of redemption, in spite of our great sin, is a story of grace. You see, God makes this covenant with Abraham here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'm just going to call him Abraham, by the way, for the rest of the sermon. He makes this covenant with Abraham, and, and a covenant refers to a formal agreement between two parties. You see, even though it's a story of grace, a covenant of grace it doesn't exclude the fact that God has certain expectations for us, certain requirements from us. And we see this in the very first verse. What does he tell Abraham? Look at this. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so he says, Go and leave. Leave your country. Leave your family. Leave your extended family. Leave the familiarity of all your surroundings. Leave your comforts and your conveniences and go. And Abraham responds like we need to respond in obedience and faith. You see, this was not an easy thing for Abraham to, to answer this call. But this is why 
we find that he is the father of faith. Verse 4 simply tells us that Abram went as the Lord told him. He was obedient to God's command. I love the fact that he takes God at his word and he obeys, simply obeys. And this is God's expectation for us, that we would hear his call and that we would respond in great trust, even if we don't have all the answers for what's coming next. And we would be obedient to whatever it is that he's calling us to be about and to do for his kingdom. You see, God has a mission for his people, all of us. It doesn't matter what your vocation may be, how you spend your nine to five, day in, day out. He has a mission for us all, and that primary mission is what we find in Matthew 28. We are to make disciples of all nations. We have a common mission, and it is our job to respond in obedience and faith to God's missional call on our lives. That's number one. Number two, the second encouragement. Receive the blessings that belong to God's covenant people. Receive the blessings that belong to God's covenant people. God gives Abraham several promises in these three verses. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And so let's break these down one by one. First, I will make you into a great nation. Abram's name means exalted father. Now God changes his name in Genesis 17 to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. So Abraham is going to be this father of a multitude. Now, Abraham has to have radical faith here. Why? Because Genesis 11.30, you look back up at the previous chapter, it says that his wife Sarah was barren, she had no child. Added to that, in Genesis 17, we find out that Abraham, at the age of 99, is still without a child. God, me? The father of many nations? I don't even have a child. And yet he accepts this. He takes God at his word. This is why Genesis 15, verse 6, one of the key verses in the Bible says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of great faith. He becomes the father of all of the physical descendants of Israel, all of ethnic Israel. But even more than that, he becomes the father of all of the true people of God, those who share the faith of Abraham, those who have faith in this covenant-keeping God who sends his son, Jesus Christ, that all who have faith in him might have life. In Romans 4, verses 13 through 25, unpacks this great faith. And so we don't do this often, but I want to invite you to turn to Romans 4 in your Bibles and we're going to read verses 13 through 25. So if you're using the Bible we provided for you, it's on page 941. I want to read for us this lengthy passage that really unpacks the great faith of Abraham and how he is the father of us all. Follow along with me as I read these verses. 
says this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let me just stop there. Paul is making the argument, people are not saved, not participants in this blessing, through their own obedience to the law, because no one can obey the law. So this blessing comes through faith. This is the general argument. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now listen to this, 99 years old, this is what he's referring to. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since we, as he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But... The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So God promises to make Abraham a great nation. And he does this through his faith in the promises of of God. Number two, he says, I will bless you. When God says, I will bless you, this is a comprehensive blessing. God is saying, I will meet your needs. I will protect you. I will prosper you. I will cause your steps to be firm, and I will be with you. I mean, implicit in all of these promises to Abraham is God's covenant presence to be with him. And this was the greatest reward for Abraham, and it should be our greatest reward as well. There is nothing better than the presence of God in our lives. What made this blessing such a blessing was the presence of God. What will make heaven heaven one day is the presence of God. So when we answer God's call to go on mission for him, we have the blessing of his presence. Number three, he says, I will make your name great. Now, we need to back up a chapter to kind of feel the weight of this because in Genesis chapter 11, you have people gathering together, and in verse 4 it says, look at this in Genesis 11, 4, it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. 
lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see, these people on the plain of Shinar who make this what we know now as the Tower of Babel, their motivation was to not reflect God's image, not to point to how great he is, but to make a name for themselves. And we know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So our concern should not be to make a name for ourselves as if we really matter all that much, but the order of our life should be to make God's name famous, to point to how great he is, to reflect him with our lives. Perhaps this is why Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by saying what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be set apart, revered, worshipped as holy. So he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. God promises to do good to those who do good to Abraham, and he promises that there will be severe consequences to those who dishonor him. You see, God's protective hand would guide Abraham through all of the ups and downs of his life, would guide him on the journey that God had called him to. And for those of us in Christ, we have this same promise. Jesus takes an intimate interest in the lives of his people. He is with us to protect us, to guide us. His gracious hand makes a way for us on our journey. And so to kind of cap up this thought, if you belong to Christ, God's promises of blessing are for you. This is what Paul is getting at in Galatians 3.29 when he says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are heirs with Christ. Heirs of this man of faith, Abraham. So we should respond to God's missional call on our lives. We must also receive the blessings that belong to God's covenant people. But then finally, number three, we must resolve to be a blessing to all people of the world. Resolve to be a blessing to all people. See, God's blessings for his people are so vast and so satisfying that it's difficult to put into words just how amazing they are. And this is why Paul would begin his, his, his letter to the Ephesians just with this word of praise. How else can he respond? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with all spiritual blessings in Christ. So we should respond in such a way that we are giving God praise for his countless blessings to us in Christ, more than we can ever begin to comprehend. 
But I want to put forth a warning to us this morning that the blessings of God can become a detriment to the mission of God. You say, how is that, Tanner? Well, oftentimes we take what God has given us and like selfish little children, we hoard those blessings for ourselves. Rather than being blessed to be a blessing, we are blessed to just enjoy the blessings. And that is contrary to God's design for his covenant people. Dominic Smart says this, the whole point of the covenant is that through us, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. You see, behind these promises to Abraham stands God's heart, his great intention to bless all the peoples of the world. Perhaps it would be helpful to think about it like this. God's blessings come with a propeller on them so that when we receive God's blessing, the propeller never stops moving in the heart of God. He wants us to take this blessing and then let it be propelled into giving that same blessing to someone else. This was God's plan for Abraham. He says in verse 3, check it out, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now how is it that it's in Abraham all the, all, the, all the peoples of the world will be blessed? Well, because Abraham would have a descendant, an offspring, whose name was Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew 1.1 begins to point out. The very first verse of the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is in Abraham that all the peoples of the world will be blessed. But then we ask the question, in what way will they be blessed? And this phrase, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is a huge phrase in the story of God's great redemption. And so let's dive into that for just a couple of moments. When God says in Genesis 12, 3, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham, he is, he is saying that all the peoples of the world, not in a geopolitical sense, so not just the country of Armenia, but all the peoples, all the families of the world in an ethno-linguistic sense. So people that not just simply share the same uh, nationality, but a people who say, share the same language and the same culture. So this is good news, and this really gives shape to our mission. This is why we talk about unreached people groups at Redemption Hill, because God's heart is not just to get people from the nation of China to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, respond to the gospel, become worshipers of God, but God's heart is that the Han peoples and the Li peoples, and the say peoples, and the by peoples would all become 
worshipers of King Jesus. This thread runs all throughout Scripture. So let me just unpack it for us really briefly. Genesis 3.8, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he says this, and this is so good, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Whoa, the gospel's in Genesis. There you go, according to Paul. I agree. What does he say? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now let's ask the question, what Greek words, okay, here's a little Greek lesson for you this morning. What Greek words does Paul use in Galatians 3.8 to unpack what God has promised to Abraham in Genesis 12? It's the words panta ta ethne, all nations, all peoples, all the families of the earth. Now, where else do we see this in Scripture? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Panta ta ethne. All the peoples. This is the mission of Christ. This is the mission of the church. That we would take the gospel, that we would not leave one unreached people group of which there are more than 6,000 who have little to no access to the gospel. That we would not leave them behind. That we would fail to pray for them. That we, we would fail to make an attempt to give generously and to go strategically to these people. This is our mission. All the families, all ethno-linguistic groups. But it doesn't just stop there. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I hope you love this. John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, there it is again, panta ta ethne, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's heart God's desire from Genesis to Revelation is not just that one little tiny people would experience and know his blessing and be worshipers of him, but the mission of God is that all peoples, all people groups would be redeemed to become rightful worshipers of him. This is what we want to be about as a church. We want the gospel to not just kind of chill out amongst ourselves. We want to be a church that is a global church that will take the gospel to the nations. You see, oftentimes we as Christians suffer from a very narrow and a very individualistic view of salvation. Now that doesn't mean that salvation is not personal. Salvation is intensely personal. God loves individuals. But God saves individuals that they might be a channel for the blessing of all people. 
We are the instruments in his hand that he uses to take his blessing to the world. I said this before, I love to say it again. God pursues people through his people. So if these unreached people groups are going to be reached with the gospel, it has to be God's people taking the message to them. It has to be us. So as we're confronted with the way God's mission is accomplished, the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, should ring in our ears. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples as he sends them out. He says this, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. This is the gospel impetus for the mission of God. Freely you have received, freely give. If you have found mercy in Christ, go, give mercy. If you have found the love of God by the grace of God, go, freely give. If God has blessed you with a nice job and food on the table, then go, take your resources and be a blessing to those who have the greater need. Here's a simple truth that I want us to wrap our minds around this morning. God puts no restriction on how much love his people are to give. There are no constraints to the amount of mercy that we are to pour out as believers in Christ. There are no constraints for the amount of forgiveness that we should extend to people in light of the great forgiveness that we have received in Christ. God is not in heaven saying, hey, Deshaun, you've already extended kindness to 10 people this week. Why don't you pipe it down a little bit? That's enough. He's not saying to Marsha, don't you think that that $100 gift is generous enough to that missionary couple? Don't just go crazy and give double that. That's enough. He's not saying to us this morning, don't you think it's enough to pray for the globe on Sunday mornings? Like, doesn't that clean your conscience? Let's not just go crazy and get radical and pray for the nations every single day. This is what Paul says. I hope you know these verses. They're so good. Paul in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, when he gives the fruit of the Spirit, all right, you need to know this. When he gives the fruit of the Spirit, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then what does he say? He says, against such things, pause, such things means that the fruit of the Spirit is not limited to just those nine characteristics or qualities. The fruit of the Spirit is wisdom, boldness, 
It's all these things that God produces in our lives. But against such things, there is no law. There's no law. There's no restriction. We can be as liberal as we want to be with love and grace and mercy and kindness and generosity to others. This is the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's the whole point of the new covenant in Christ as well. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. God is on a mission. God is on a mission to redeem worshipers from every people group on the planet. And his mission must be our mission. We want to be a church that reaches the multitudes of unreached peoples with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you say, how will this begin to happen? Well, here are just a couple of steps. All right, just a couple of initial steps that we can take. Number one, pray. As we are beginning to do on Sunday mornings, we need to be a church that prays toward this. And matter of fact, let me just be kind of transparent on kind of the game plan for redemption. You can pray for us as leaders because over the next months, John and I, we're going to sit down and we're going to really try to map out, strategize on how we can be a church that reaches the nations with the gospel. Number two, we can begin by engaging the nations right where we are. I mean, there are people from all over the world right here in a tenth of a mile radius. Hang out after church, go grab lunch in Medford Square, and you can meet Chinese people, people from Thailand, people from Brazil, people from Japan, people from Nepal. You, I mean, the list can go on and on. There are people from all over the globe right here. So let's reach out to them where we are. Let's not also neglect our own nation. This is why this month, here, let's bring it home. This month, coming month, July, we're going to engage in some serious service projects. I mean, we want these to be as radical as possible. We're putting on a free soccer clinic called Soccer Nights for lower-income families, underprivileged families, who may not be able to afford to send their kids to summer camp. We have an opportunity to impact our whole community through this effort. And then it doesn't stop there. The last week of July, we're going to engage in this week called Serve Medford, and we're going to be engaged. We have teams kind of coming in from all over the country who are praying for our church and supporting us in a variety of ways. They're going to come in, and they're going to help us serve our city. We're going to go out, and we're going to help the Boys and Girls Club. We're going to engage in lower-income housing and put on day camps for kids. We're going to pick up rakes and, and beautify the parks in Medford. We're going to try to bless local businesses by washing their... We're going to do all kinds of stuff. Because we've been blessed to be a blessing to others. So in conclusion, I want to challenge us to do two things this week. Number one, meditate on the blessings of the gospel. Meditate on the blessings of the gospel. All that Christ has done for you. Think about the great salvation that he is distributing to his people and all that comes with that. And then number two, as you take that first step to meditate on the gospel, preach 
the gospel to yourself. Then number two, ask God to show you how he wants to use you to bless others. Perhaps, hopefully, if your schedules permit, or maybe even if your schedules don't permit, you'll find a way to kind of jump on board with soccer nights or serve Medford. But the service projects won't stop there for our church. It's just the beginning. But pray, ask God, how can I be a blessing? Not just, at the, how can you be a blessing to your neighbor? How can you be a blessing to your coworkers? He has blessed us to be a blessing. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God. How? By living out his mission as a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you are excited to jump on board with the mission of God because it is going to go forward with or without us. It is a privilege to engage in God's great mission. You see, we are never more like Jesus than when we take a towel, as he did in John 13, and we decide to serve others, to wash the feet of others, no matter what that looks like. And we find the motivation for our serving in the serving of Christ. See, Jesus did not just take a towel, although he did that, and he said it's a marvelous example. But Jesus took a cross, and he put it on his back, and he died a cruel substitutionary death that whoever would believe in him might have life, and have life so that they might not only enjoy all the blessings of God, but that they might be a blessing to others. This is where we find our motivation to serve. Let's be about that business in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace to us, and thank you for this word from Genesis 12. God, help us to see your mission, love your mission, and get on board with your mission. For you did not save us to sit on our hands and enjoy and hoard your blessings for ourselves. God, may this church be a church that impacts this city in radical ways for your great glory and the good of all peoples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.